I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Welcome to the LRB Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Schatz, and my guests today are two of the most distinguished and incisive commentators on the politics of Israel-Palestine, Muin Rabani, a co-editor of Jadalia, formerly an analyst at the International Crisis Group, and Nathan Thrall, a journalist in Jerusalem who until recently was also an analyst at the International Crisis Group. Muin and Nathan have both published recent pieces in the LRB, and Nathan has just published a 20,000-word work of reportage in the New York Review of Books Online, A Day in the Life of Abed Salama, which, although it appears in the pages of our friendly competitor, I strongly urge our listeners to read. So thank you for joining us today on the LRB podcast, Muin and Nathan. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, Muin, I'd, I'd like to start by asking you something about your piece on Israel's response to the COVID crisis. Israel has been widely praised for its efforts to vaccinate its citizens and has used this as part of its self-celebration campaign. But millions of stateless people under Israel's authority have been essentially uh, left out. Can you give us a sense of the discrepancy between Israel's claims and the realities on the ground? Yeah, Thanks, uh, Adam. I, th- I think there are two ways to look at this. The first is to look at Israel the way you would at any other country. You know, you could compare it to uh, to Denmark or Vietnam or Canada. And then if you look at Israel's vaccination strategy, it would appear to be uh, extraordinarily successful given the per capita vaccines, the way that they've managed to procure the jabs and so on. But Israel is, of course, is in the 21st century in a virtually unique position, which is that it has established what I think is fair to say permanent rule over territories which are inhabited by millions of non-citizens. And so even though Israel is by any measure as responsible um, for the public health of the residents of those territories as it is for its own citizens, it has basically said, none of our business, you people figure it out yourselves, and then has gone even further to actually obstruct efforts that have been made by the Palestinians themselves to acquire to acquire uh, vaccines for for their own people. So it's kind of a, a double whammy, if you will, where the Palestinians are effectively at the complete and total mercy of the Israeli authorities as they attempt to um, to confront the pandemic 
on their own lands. I, I should also add perhaps um, uh, another factor, which is that the pandemic, of course, has has entered the West Bank and Gaza Strip through various ways. But one of the main routes of transmission has been Palestinian workers who work in Israel and got infected uh, within Israel and then bought the virus back to their towns and villages and refugee camps. So that, if anything, only adds to Israel's uh, responsibility. And, And I should add, it's not a moral responsibility. It is an actual legal responsibility. The Palestinian doctor and political leader, Mustafa Barghouti, has called this a situation of medical uh, apartheid. How successful has uh, Barghouti been in publicizing this and in uh, attempting to rectify this situation? Well, unfortunately, neither he nor others have been particularly successful. I think, you know, they've they've managed to um, make their voice heard and, and, and get on uh, several programs that actually take an interest in these issues. And, uh, you know, there, there have been some news reports and so on. But I think overwhelmingly, the focus has been on what's called Israel's extraordinary success at vaccinating its own citizens and population, as if, you know, completely neglecting its public health responsibility to millions of stateless citizens, which it occupies and which has itself made state stateless, is somehow uh, a footnote to the story. Yeah, one almost has the sense that uh, that the rhetoric about the Israeli vaccination miracle has replaced Israel as the only democracy in the Middle East rhetoric. Yeah, very, very much so. And and I should add, there's kind of an interesting uh, footnote here. An important part of the reason for Israel's success is that it very early on made uh, agreements with one of the main um, producers of the vaccine, Pfizer, and paid premium dollar for the vaccines. According to my information, it's paid basically twice what, for example, European governments have paid for the same vaccine. But perhaps uh, um, the more the other more interesting and concerning issue is that Israel also made an agreement with Pfizer to provide huge volumes of uh, patient data to Pfizer. And I was speaking to one European official who said, well, you know, good for them. But if a European government made a similar agreement with Pfizer to provide this volume of data and so on, we'd be burnt at the stake. Mm. Uh, Now, Israel has been exchanging the vaccine for diplomatic support. So uh, Hondurans, Czechs and others far from the Middle East are more likely to benefit from this miracle than its Palestinian neighbors. Uh, You call this basically a a bribe. Yes, very much so. I mean, you know, Israel does have uh, an excess supply of vaccines. Well, excess, if you accept um, the Israeli premise, which is that it only needs to inoculate its own population because, you know, as Israeli defense, uh, or rather the Israeli minister of of health said, we have as much responsibility for the Palestinians as the Palestinians have for the dolphins in the Mediterranean Sea. And therefore it has used its additional supply not to uh, undertake its public health responsibility to 
the stateless residents within the territories it rules, but rather to reward uh, foreign governments, either for actions that they've already taken to bolster the permanence of Israeli rule over these territories, or otherwise to entice them to do so. So it includes governments such as Guatemala, which I believe is the only government that has followed the United States in transferring its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, an explicit violation of a long-standing United Nations Security Council resolution. But it also includes Mauritania, a member of the Arab League, with which Israel is, is hoping to establish formal diplomatic relations. Nathan, uh, the official claim of the Israelis is that, after all, Palestinians live in a, a separate regime. They're citizens of something called the uh, Palestinian Authority, and therefore the responsibility for their care belongs to the PA, not to Israel. In a recent essay for the LRB, you, you carefully demolish the illusion of separate regimes and show that a single state is, in effect, uh, the sovereign power from the river to the sea. Is this notion of separate regimes persuasive to most Israeli Jews, or is it a lie that they've chosen to accept because it feeds into a kind of complacent, reassuring fiction? Are, are we looking at ideological indoctrination or a collective denial or some combination? Uh, so, so I believe it's actually very much uh, a case of indoctrination. I think Israelis truly do believe that they live in a separate regime from the Palestinians and that they do not, in the case of the, the vaccines, for example, I think there is actually more acknowledgement of Israeli responsibility. But that doesn't um, translate into believing that Israel is uh, a single state from the river to the sea, and it's just implementing different uh, systems of control within that territory. So if you look back in Israeli history, you see that there's a, a precedent for this. In the period of the military government that Israel had from 1948 until uh, 1966, December 1966, just before the June 60, 1967 war, during that period as well, there was a, a military regime and, and it was ruling over the vast majority of Palestinian citizens of Israel. And most Israelis were not questioning whether their country was a democracy at that time while it was uh, you know, imposing military government on the basis of ethnicity within within the state. And most people had this kind of mentality of those regions as being over there. E even at that time, you know, th th there was a uh, ambiguity there within the, you know, boundaries of what we consider the state, but they're not really part of the state. And, and I think that there's a similar uh, ambiguity today. There's, there's a kind of a frontier mentality. There's a frontier it's, it's not exactly within the state. It's not exactly outside the state. And, you know, slowly but surely, some elements within Israeli society are, are making sure to push that frontier uh, steadily eastward. You know, I, one thing I've wondered about, and this is a question for, for both of you, is how from a purely public health standpoint, Israel hasn't made more of an effort to achieve complete herd immunity uh, in the occupied territories. After all, as, as Muin was noting, Palestinian workers still go back and forth between Israel and the West Bank. And some of the you know, first cases of COVID in the West Bank were linked to Palestinian workers who contracted the virus in Israel. Wouldn't complete herd immunity in the occupied territories be a victory 
a, a public relations victory for the occupying power. Yeah, I mean, if it's interesting in this way to look at Israel as kind of a microcosm of, of the planet as a whole, just as you have kind of a global vaccine discrepancy where wealthy Western countries are seeking to uh, hoard supply while you have these uh, mutations and variants emerging in places where the virus is still running rampant, that is at least potentially a scenario that could also play out um, within the territory under Israeli rule. And you earlier referred to uh, Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, and he's made this exact same point that not only does Israel have a responsibility towards the stateless Palestinians living under its rule from a public health perspective, but their policy also makes absolutely no sense if viewed more narrowly from an Israeli public uh, health perspective, because they basically are creating this Petri dish right on their doorstep. Nathan? I think that there, there is obviously even acknowledgement among Israeli officials or some Israeli officials that it's in Israel's interest uh, to have widespread vaccination. And this is a clear case where, you know, there is, there is much more acknowledgement that there is a single regime here and that over 100,000 Palestinians are working in Israel and the settlements and there's there's simply no way to segregate the, the the two from from the spread of the virus which which of course underscores too the reality of coexistence even in conditions of radical inequality discrimination and apartheid the two peoples live together whether they like it or not absolutely you know uh 60 a little over 60% of uh the west bank is uh, not just under Israeli control, as all the West Bank is, but uh, is under Israeli administration. And there are approximately 300,000 Palestinians living there. So there's absolutely no excuse not to be giving. I mean, even that weak excuse doesn't apply to them. And they, those 300,000 Palestinians living in Area C, 60% of the West Bank, uh, they have not been offered vaccines. Even within the West Bank, you have very different realities of Israeli control and different kinds of restrictions. And in this uh, debate that's now taking place on the left about apartheid, one of the the central uh, issues of debate is what territory do we apply it to? Is it apartheid uh, just in the occupied territories? uh, Or is it uh, a system of apartheid that exists in all of the territories under Israel's control, but implemented in different ways in different places? And, and if you were to very narrowly say that um, apartheid applies only in the West Bank because only these certain conditions of severity and uh, of, of, the, of the crimes are met, then you would have to actually say, okay, if I'm going to take an arbitrary category like that, then, you know, apartheid doesn't exist in, say, the settlement of Maledumim. You know, that actually Palestinians aren't being subjugated within the settlement of Maledumim. And uh, maybe, you know, apartheid doesn't exist, um, you know, within Gaza uh, because the, uh, you know, system of control is really exerted from the outside and it's a different kind of thing. And and what we actually see is that inside the West Bank, 
the lives of Palestinians in Area C, which are the ones who are being um, subjugated to the worst kind of apartheid, because they're under direct Israeli administration and their lands are being steadily uh, taken over and their homes are being demolished. You know, when you live in the middle of Ramallah, your home doesn't get demolished uh, by by the state of Israel because it's trying to take over your land. Um, But that does happen in Area C and it does happen in the Negev. And all of the kind of distinctions about well, is it apartheid in, in the, you know, the state of Israel or is it apartheid in the West Bank? They, they actually fall apart when we really look at the policies that Israel's are in, implementing because the same policies that Israel's implementing in Area C are the same ones that it's implementing in the Negev. And it's true that the Palestinian citizens in the Negev, they do have the right uh, to vote uh, and Palestinian citizens and uh, Palestinian subjects in Area C do not. But that right to vote doesn't actually help them prevent their homes from being demolished, their lands from being taken over, their villages from not being recognized and hooked up to uh, water and electricity. And so I think that, you know, the reality here is extremely messy and everybody is looking at it through the prism of their preferred solution rather than looking at it as it actually is. And what it actually is, is Israeli control from the river to the sea. And there are p- pockets of autonomy, of Palestinian limited autonomy within that territory. But if we add up all of those pockets together, which are disconnected and scattered into over 165 uh, islands, 165 in the West Bank plus Gaza, um, those pockets together make up approximately 10% of the entire territory. Uh, Muin, I see you're eager to uh, say something. Speaking from the Netherlands, I'd just like to make a small addition, which is uh, apartheid is actually a Dutch word, and it means separateness. And I think uh, separateness is a phenomenally accurate description of Israeli-Palestinian relations uh, between the Mediterranean and the River Jordan. Um, the COVID crisis exploded in the twilight of the most rapidly pro-Israel administration in American history, the Trump administration. The U.S. has, of course, seldom shown anything like even-handedness in its dealings with Israel and the Palestinians, but the, the Trump administration outdid itself in embracing the Zionist right, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, presiding over the so-called Abraham Accords. Mike Pence dined with settlers and sang the praises of wine produced on confiscated Palestinian land. Can we step back a little bit and reflect on the impact of those four years on Israel and Palestine and what you think their legacy will be? Well, I, I, I think it's important to distinguish between what was and what was not new in terms of the Trump administration's policy towards the Middle East. I mean, one important difference, for example, is that since the late 1960s, at least, the U.S. government has tended to support increasingly uncritically and unconditionally the sitting Israeli government of the day, whether it's Labor Party, Likud, um, they, they tend to 
align their policies with whoever happens to be in power in Israel. I think under the Trump administration, you had a shift in which you had a group of extremist radicals within the White House, and particularly its team focused on Israeli-Palestinian issues, embracing not just the policies of the actually existing Israeli government, but going beyond that and openly embracing the agenda of the radical Israeli right and adopting it as its own. But having said that, if you also look at some of the most consequential decisions the Trump administration took, for example, the relocation of the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and its recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the entirety of Jerusalem for all intents and purposes, that's actually based in solidly bipartisan congressional legislation that had been adopted uh, decades before and reconfirmed on regular occasions since. If you look at the um, decision by the Trump administration to sever funding to UNRWA, the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees. I mean, UNRWA has been demonized on a bipartisan basis in the U.S. Congress year in and, and year out. And the list could go on. I mean, the closure of the Palestinian mission in Washington, D.C. and the expulsion of its diplomats is also based on longstanding congressional legislation that characterizes the PLO as a terrorist organization and that had never been rescinded by the U.S. government uh, over, over the years. So I think it's probably more accurate to say that Trump put traditional U.S. policy on a hefty dose of steroids rather than that he took it into a completely a new direction, which was heretofore alien to um, previous American governments. So, so you see, you see continuity uh, and flamboyance, of course, more than uh, more than any kind of rupture. Well, I think in, in certain respects there there was a departure, but that departure also had a basis in in previously existing U.S. policy. But I, yeah, I do think um, you provided a very good characterization of it. I, I agree uh, entirely. And, and to add to it, if we take the Trump plan itself, which was considered an outrage by good thinking uh, liberals and all the great supporters of the two state solution, uh, that this was a terrible plan. It was a, a Bantustan plan. It was an outrage. It was apartheid that Trump was, was proposing. I mean, this was a matter of taking the blueprint of the existing plans and just uh, stretching them. There, th- these were differences of degree, not differences of kind. Mm. So all the previous plans, they proposed that the majority of Israeli settlers stay in place and that we should draw the line of the border in order to encompass as many Israeli settlers as we possibly can. All of the previous plans it entailed and you know even the Geneva initiative which is considered the most left leaning it's not even an official plan it's an unofficial plan which is considered the most left leaning uh plan the most uh, let's say quote unquote pro palestinian uh plan that that plan had 
Palestinians from Ramallah going through a tunnel to under sovereign Israeli territory in order to reach the old city of Jerusalem and uh, pray at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So the notion that, you know, Trump was introducing some new outrage by proposing that Palestinians were going to have to travel under under uh, sovereign Israeli te- territory through through tunnel roads or what have you, and that they would have what they the Trump administration called uh, transportational contiguity. That was a very old idea, and it was one that was embraced by the left. Their position on absolute rejection of uh, Palestinian refugee claims was uh, something with uh, a deep uh, precedent. And so it's true that the Trump plan uh, did look worse than than its predecessors. But the fact that all of these people who had supported those predecessor plans attempted to sit on a high horse and express outrage at how awful the Trump plan was a little too much to take. Mm. Well, for for those critics, it seems as though the end of Jewish democracy or the arrival of apartheid is always about to happen. They don't see that it already has happened. That's exactly right. I, I, I completely agree with Nathan, and I think it's it's very important, particularly in this context, to to focus on continuity and change in U.S. policy. But I think we also need to take a closer look at what's been happening within Israeli politics. And I think it's fair to say that if you look at the period from 1967 until roughly 2000 and and the second Palestinian Intifada, the main dividing line within Israeli politics was between those who advocated for some form of territorial agreement not often a Palestinian state, but either, you know, dividing the West Bank um, between Israel and Jordan or something similar. It was between those who felt that Israel was best served by a formal territorial agreement versus those who believed Israeli interests were best served by an indefinite continuation of the status quo. Let's call it permanent occupation. What I think you've had in the past 15 to 20 years is a shift to the right where the dividing line now is between those who favor an indefinite perpetuation of the status quo and those who advocate open and formal annexation of some much or all um, uh, of the West Bank. And I think it's also important to point out how that shifting Israeli dynamic and the shifting dynamic within the U.S. are kind of mutually reinforcing. Right. And also in that story that you've just described, the uh, the Labor Party, which uh, pioneered the first settlements after uh, the 67 war, originally uh, starts out as an advocate of some kind of territorial settlement, as you mentioned, but then is brought into the permanent occupation camp. Very much so. You know, the Trump administration imposed sanctions on the uh, International Criminal Court after the court's head prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda, uh, announced an investigation into Israeli war crimes in Gaza. Netanyahu is said to have asked Biden to retain those sanctions. Uh, They remain in place. What do you expect from the Biden administration, not just on the ICC, but on the Israeli-Palestinian file more generally? I'll, I'll begin because my answer is very short. 
I expect very little from the Biden administration. You know, I, th- I think a lot of people would agree with that statement that they expect very little from the Biden administration on Israel-Palestine. But I think the conventional view is that, well, that's because uh, their priority is to get a deal with Iran and um, they're already going to have a big fight with Israel over that and they don't need to make their lives more difficult by fighting with Israel over, over the settlements or over the Palestinian issue, but that once an Iran deal is reached, then the Biden administration may turn to the Palestinian issue or may at least become more assertive in condemning settlements. Muin. Um, first of all, I, I, I do think it's important to recognize that Trump's ouster from the White House has now, at least um, for the foreseeable future, removed formal annexation from the Israeli-American agenda. You know, people may find that trivial or meaningless. I, I, I think it's in, in some respects uh, significant. Um, that would be my first point. My second point would be getting back to uh, Nathan's point about U.S.-Iranian relations. It may also prove to be the case that the United States will withhold certain favors, if you will, from Israel, for example, in terms of encouraging the Saudis uh, to normalize uh, relations with Israel in order to maintain some leverage over Israel as they deal with um, U.S.-Iranian relations. So, so do you mean that normalization with the Saudis would be kind of a, of a, of a U.S. gift to the, uh, the Israelis if they were able to get an Iran deal? Is that what you mean? No, what, what I mean is that, that the U.S. will, for the time being at least, not be agitating for such an agreement in order to kind of keep Netanyahu in check. And um, two more points I'd like to make is uh, the first is, again, returning to this theme of continuity and change. The Biden administration has already made very clear it will retain the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, you know, as, as you mentioned, it's maintaining, at least for now, the sanctions on the ICC, I presume, in order to, uh, to pressure it on its work on Palestine. And it's made very clear that the Israeli-Palestinian file is in no way a priority. But I think there's also another important point to make here, which is, in no small part, thanks to Netanyahu and and his approach to American politics during the past uh, decade, uh, but also other developments, Israel is becoming an increasingly partisan issue in U.S. politics, whereas Israel has traditionally been a solid bipartisan American consensus. And I think what that means is that when you have a democratic administration in power, even though its main officials are known for their lifelong passionate attachment uh, to Israel, it does create opportunities. You know, now the pressure on the White House will not be coming from the radical evangelicals, but from the progressive movement. And so I do think that this creates opportunities that could be utilized. I'd, I'd like to actually pose a question to, to Moeen, if I could, ab- about something that you had just, just mentioned. Please. So, so on this point of the significance of, of um, the U.S. taking off or 
rather that annexation is no longer on the table now that Biden is here and there's a the Abraham Accords uh, between Israel and, and the UAE. So I, I, the question that I have for you is, let's think in the very, very long term about Israel's uh, strategy and about Israel's future and the future of the settlements and the future of Israeli control of the, of the territory. Now, let's posit for the sake of, of argument that Israel's goal is to have you know, full control of the, of the entire territory and eventually have this all become the state of Israel. Now, there's an argument that the best way to do that is to proceed very slowly and incrementally as Israel's been doing, and that it, it would actually be counterproductive to formally annex, and that you can, not that the whole world is going to do much about it, but that it does create more of a backlash. It creates a kind of unmasking as that was one of the effects of the Trump. That's a traditional Israeli establishment view. What is, sorry? That one should proceed cautiously, gradually, because, you know, formal annexation uh, is more trouble than it's worth. Right. So, So my question to you is, do you believe that it's it's correct and analytically that Israel can reach that goal more easily or more successfully by proceeding slowly. And if you do agree that proceeding slowly and incrementally and without bombast and perhaps with the center or the center left in power and good relations with the U.S. and lots of talk about shared values and, and what have you, if that's a more uh, sure path to, to success then is it the case that taking annexation off of the table and or, or any other move really that's weakening this the hard israeli right that that those are are really achievements that we should be celebrating no i i, I think i think you raise a very interesting point to which i i would respond in the following way which is first of all this this debate that that you refer to to my mind, was traditionally a debate within Israeli elites about proceeding unilaterally. In other words, without any agreement from its strategic allies or a consensus within the international community or what have you. I think what you had under Trump was in some respects significantly different because you had the initiative for annexation coming from the White House. My sense is is that Netanyahu was of two minds about annexation and and that it became very difficult for the prime minister of Israel uh, to continue to hold off on, on annexation when, when the White House was agitating for him uh, to do it. That's That right. would be my first point. My second point is that if you look at what actually happened after the Trump administration released Peace to Prosperity, kind of had a global shrug. You know, the Europeans, um, I think the furthest they went would be to say that if Israel proceeded with annexation, there would be consequences and never once spelled out what, if any, consequences uh, there would be. And what I think the experience of of the past 12 to 18 months demonstrates is that if you have energetic U.S. endorsement and sponsorship and support for formal Israeli annexation, there's not going to be the global pushback that has been the traditional fear of of um, Israeli uh, decision makers. 
But I, I agree entirely with with that. That and I mean, the, we have uh, proof positive that there would be uh, no international consequences if uh, if Israel had annexed. Um, I was actually just thinking about this in a much more long term view and asking whether the left or the center left in Israel would actually be more successful than the right in in reaching uh, this goal. So. It's whether I think that the gradualism of the center left is more effective than the unilateralism, for lack of a better word, of, of the right. Yeah. I mean, I would say they're both unilateral. I would just say that one one is is more. Yeah. Let's call it the, radi- the, the radicalism or whatever. Yes. Um, no, I, I, I think, you know, the history of the past 50 years clearly demonstrates that gradualism has been extraordinarily successful. Right. Well, isn't gradualism just uh, establishing facts on the ground and not making showy declarations around those facts? Yes. Exactly. But but the other and, point... And, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that that to, just to get back to the whole question of Netanyahu, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Netanyahu, as you were saying, was ambivalent about annexation, but how could he oppose an initiative promoted from Washington, Right. So so he he bet on that and he tried to ride the the Trump wave. And so Trump's defeat was quite a defeat for Netanyahu. And I believe his popularity ratings in in Israel are pretty low right now, uh, to the point where in these upcoming elections, he has even been embarking on a strategy of cultivating support among Palestinian citizens of Israel. I think even forging an alliance with an Islamist political leader. I mean, it's very strange. So uh, I think it would be very unwise for me to predict the Israeli election results uh, four days before they're they're about to to occur. But um, look, I mean, it's still the by far this he's leading the strongest party uh, of all of all the parties uh, in Israel, and and you know there there doesn't appear to be a real uh, challenger. And and if we look at at the the actual uh, block that uh, that Netanyahu leads. I mean, that block is massive. We've, we're now redefining the blocks as, you know, our, the pro-Netanyahu block and the anti-Netanyahu block, which is an absurd uh, kind of way of, of characterizing it. If, if we actually add up, you know, the vote tallies or, or the, the, the seat uh, tallies of the uh, parties that are on the right and ideologically affiliated with the Likud movement, their their power is uh, very very strong, and and we're looking at seventy plus eighty plus seats for you know those right parties for Likud and the two Haredi parties and uh, Bennett's Yamina party and Lieberman, who is now suddenly characterized as you know not in the in the right block for the purposes of this distinction of the pro and anti Netanyahu blocks, so. Netanyahu is leading the by far the biggest party, and even within his his block, there's there's no real uh, challenger. Muin raised uh, an interesting issue a few moments ago about the state of play in Washington with the Biden administration. The administration obviously uh, is very pro-Israel. There is no uh, question of that, but it will be hearing from left and liberal Democrats who uh, have strong objections to the American government's policies towards Israel and who uh, have become increasingly mobilized 
around the oppression of Palestinians, around the denial of self-determination. There has been in recent years a growing movement among people on the left, Arab Americans, uh, left-wing Jews. Um, But at the same time, it seems to me, we don't really hear much about Palestinian agency. And I'm talking about Palestinian agency in Palestine, in the occupied territories. We hear about BDS, but we don't really hear about what's going on on the ground politically in the occupied territories. Reading the papers today, in fact, you might assume that Palestine had dropped off the map. This is going to be a very bleak question. You know, over the last decade, it's been eclipsed. The issue has been eclipsed in the media by the more violent wars in Syria and Yemen. And in the meantime, uh, Israel and the Gulf powers, as we've discussed, have taken advantage of uh, the largesse of uh, uh, Washington and of Sunni Arab fears of Iran to grow ever closer at the expense of Palestinian Arabs. At times, Palestine, which was you know always at the heart of Arab concern, seems to have been reduced to a purely national question or to a matter of left politics on Western college campuses, feuds over BDS, accusations of anti-Semitism, and so forth. The West Bank and Gaza, still divided, apparently little chance of factional unity between Fatah and Hamas. Of Palestinian activism on the ground, of new leaders, new initiatives, we hardly hear anything. The PA limps along. Israel seems to have successfully separated itself from, the, from Palestine, over which, as you've both mentioned, it, it exercises almost total unacknowledged control. Now, is my appraisal of Palestinian politics too bleak? Are there new sources of activism and energy? Because ultimately, the, on, the only thing that's going to put this issue on the international agenda again is Palestinian politics, new initiatives. I, I think the bleakness is... Uh, in many respects, justified. As you pointed out, Palestine has historically been the central issue in the Arab world. If there was Arab consensus on one issue, whether by conviction or out of fear for their own people, it was a consensus around Palestine. And it's almost difficult to remember, but that Palestine was also the international issue above all, for much of the past 70 years. Um, No other question, I think, has been as prominent on the international agenda. As you point out, we're now living in a radically, radically different world. And while there are many reasons for this, the one I would like to focus on, which I think you alluded to, is the complete disintegration of the Palestinian national movement particularly since Oslo. And you now have a situation where Palestinian leaderships, such as they are, seem to be more focused on their petty rivalries with each other rather than any national liberation project. And when they seek to solicit foreign support, it is as often to recruit support for their domestic disputes rather than in support of their national agenda. And, you know, that's extremely unfortunate. And I think, you know, the the real threat facing Palestinians today is 
that they are in the process of being transformed, you know, from the leading international political question of our time into a disjointed demographic reality of no significant political relevance. And therefore, I think Palestinian political renewal is an absolute priority because one can easily, as, as, as we have in this conversation, point to um, the responsibility of, of this, that, and the other. But unless and until Palestinians take the lead in pursuing their own interests and putting their own issue on the agenda, unfortunately, very little else is going to happen. You know, there's been much talk of late in the United States, at least, about so-called cancel culture. But one of the most lethal forms of cancellation uh, is seldom discussed, and I, I'm thinking here of the accusation of anti-Semitism, which in the, the very broad, arguably indiscriminate definition of the IHRA has been used to stifle any criticism of Israel. We discussed uh, Fatou Bensouda a moment ago. Uh, she's been explicitly accused of anti-Semitism by Israel. Now, in a, a striking development, which I'm sure you, Muin, sitting there in, in, in Holland are aware of, the mayor of Amsterdam, Femke Halsema, a former leader of the Green Left Party, uh, has criticized Netanyahu's recent statement that the ICC had made anti-Semitic edicts when the court decided last year that it had jurisdiction uh, to prosecute Israelis for, for war crimes in Gaza in 2014. Now, it seems to me that on the one hand, we have this growing awareness among members of the liberal public, as it were, that Israel has been committing crimes against the Palestinian people, that there is this system of apartheid that overdetermines their lives. And on the other hand, an intensifying effort on the part of Israel and its supporters to condemn any criticism of Israel's practices as anti-Semitic. How do you know, as, as writers who frequently comment on Israeli human rights abuses, how should critics uh, respond to these efforts to cancel criticism of Israel? Do you, do you see this campaign by Israel and its supporters as an act of desperation, or does it express confidence that they can actually succeed in tarring all criticism as, as anti-Semitic? What, what do you think is the balance of forces in the media sphere? There, there may be elements of, of desperation, but I think primarily it reflects a determination to squelch any and all discussion of Israeli policy towards the Palestinians. And, you know, it's been going on for decades. Uh, the former Israeli foreign minister, Abba Iban, once said that the purpose of the campaign should be to demonstrate that the distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is no distinction at all. And, I mean, if you look at it logically, you know, from a layman's perspective, anti-Semitism is hatred of Jews, Israel is a Jewish state, and therefore you oppose a Jewish state, you're opposing Jews, ergo you're a Nazi and an anti-Semite. It's an it's, it's, um, exceptionally effective equation to make um, in support of Israeli war crimes, if you will. And it's become kind of a Pavlovian response. And every time this happens, you wonder, you know, when are people going to recognize the overreach. I mean, I give, I give one example 
in in my recent uh, piece in the London Review of Books, where again, getting back to the vaccination issue on the American Variety Show, uh, Saturday Night Live, one of the comedians, Michael Che, presenting, you know, the kind of the news said, well, Israel has vaccinated half its population. I'm going to guess that was a Jewish half. And, you know, this was at 1130 at night, I think. By midnight, you know, the the Anti-Defamation League uh, and, and what the late Alfred Lilienthal used to refer to as the professional anti-anti-Semites were all over him, you know, demanding an apology. Uh, and it's, it's kind of um, funny, in a way, to listen to right-wing outrage um, about so-called cancel culture because the heirs of Dr. Seuss have decided um, to pull some of uh, some of his racist uh, work and, and, and focus on providing a better education to their children. But, you know, Palestinians and, and not even advocates for Palestinians, but advocates of, of a more balanced U.S. policy towards this conflict have been canceled for decades just a few days ago, I, I interviewed uh, Noam Chomsky for a podcast of my own, and he was pointing out that when he first started speaking out about this issue in the 1970s, he had to have police escorts on his own campus. And to me, the one that takes the biscuit now is if you look at the growing number of Jews being accused of anti-Semitism. You know, it, it's it's beyond it's beyond all comprehension. But there's also Another parallel tactic that has proven more or less as effective over the years, and that is what aboutism. So in other words, you know, what about Darfur? How can you complain about what Israel is doing in the West Bank uh, when, uh, you know, look at what's happening in Syria, look at what's happening in Libya? No one ever asks people protesting the military coup in Burma that they should be focusing on Gaza, but it seems Wherever and whenever people raise Palestinian human rights, there is always a different crisis that they need to be directed to. Right. Crises in which um, we're not dealing with governments that are major beneficiaries of U.S. military aid either. Exactly. Nathan, as a left wing Jew writing on Israel, Palestine, what's your take on this? I I actually so I, I do see some desperation I, I do. I, I acknowledge that this has been going on for decades. I acknowledge the power that this campaign has. I acknowledge that the IHRA uh, definition of anti-Semitism, which is basically to outlaw Palestinian nationalism, is spreading. You know, there it's being adopted in, in uh, all kinds of uh, different bodies and uh, state legislatures. So, I acknowledge all of that. And yet, my just intuitive gut feeling is that there is some some desperation and that there is a feeling that they are at risk of losing large parts of the Western elite. And I think that one of the things that could be playing into that is that we're now at a, at a kind of unusual moment in that across the political spectrum, we have consensus that there's absolutely no point in holding final status negotiations now. 
So David, former Trump uh, ambassador to Israel, David Friedman would tell you that. So would many senior Biden administration officials. The International Crisis Group put out a report saying something along these lines. The Center for New American Security and Brookings have said the same thing. So basically the entire political spectrum, uh, center, left and right, is, is saying now two states is not uh, on the horizon and there's no point in even holding talks. And we should think about ground up initiatives and small incremental things. And and because this reality is basically permanent, the reality of subjugation is basically permanent, we we should just find uh, measures to to alleviate it. That that should be our focus. So everyone's agreed on that. And it really does actually change things because then if you're agreed, if you no longer hold the position that actually no, I'm, I'm supporting a, a deeply uh, discriminatory uh, system uh, as a U.S. taxpayer. I'm supporting it now because um, the U.S. is actually making great effort to end that system. And I'm only supporting it, you know, for the next two years or so because Biden is about to achieve a Palestinian state and this system of oppression will come to an end that uh, rationale doesn't exist anymore. Now everybody's acknowledging the permanence of the situation. So so that that has already occurred. The next step that hasn't occurred is, what do we do with this new point of agreement? Okay, we're agreed now that we're looking at, you know, continued subjugation for the indefinite future, decades, possibly more than decades. And and so uh, what do I do with that piece of information? What uh, is my moral position? Uh, how do I justify continuing to support that system? Is my justification that I need to support that system because by demanding an end of that subjugation today, I will make less likely the possibility of a two-state outcome in the future? I think that's basically the position of all the unsaid position of all of these groups that are now acknowledging that there's no chance of two states. But they themselves will say, even that two-state outcome that they favor in potentially several decades, I don't know what percentage chance they give it, but I would assume it's in the low single digits. So we're going to support the subjugation of an entire ethnic group for the next several decades because we believe that there's a two, three, four percent chance that in three decades that system will come to an end and it will be a little bit easier to bring it about in an end that I, in, in a way that I prefer by not ending the subjugation today. It just it doesn't hold up. And, and I don't think that there is a good rationale anymore once you acknowledge that there is no uh, end to this system uh, in sight. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're we're looking essentially at the permanence, or at least the perpetuation, the indefinite perpetuation of of, of an impasse. And so uh, the question is, what will break that impasse? Now, you wrote a book called "The Only Language They Understand Is Force." This is a phrase that the Israelis uh, often used against Palestinians. The only language that Palestinians understand is force and our arms and so on. But you argued in that book that the same line actually applies to Israel, that the only thing that they've really under the only language they've understood coming from Palestinians is that of 
force, uh, either protest or military resistance or what have you. So is this not the missing factor then? Um, I mean, is is the only thing that could break this impasse another uprising? I think it's not the only thing that could break it. I think there are other uh, forms of force that could theoretically uh, be applied, but I think that it's the most likely if there is to be some form of force applied, I think it's the most likely one. But again, this takes us back to the points that Moyen was making earlier and that you made in, in your question, uh, which is that, you know, actually applying force in, in, in any kind of effective way requires political unity and political organization. And, um, and that's simply lacking today. Thank you so much for joining me today on the LRB podcast. It's been a real education. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You can find links to the articles by Muin Rabani and Nathan Thrall in the description below this podcast.